Welcome to the 19th episode of Port Calls and Politics, and that was Pat Benatar's Love is a Battlefield, and is my cheesy, cliche-ridden, pandering segue because, well, Pat is awesome, and it kind of works for this episode. Although, when I saw her in a concert a few years back, she didn't look too awesome. Time has uh, marched on, as they say. I am Mark Olson, an 11-year naval officer here to delve into tales I've picked up over the years. Stories forgotten, misrepresented, incredible, and always true because the truth, well, it's stranger than fiction. That is why this podcast right here remains the most modestly growing podcast in the entire world, hands down, available on iTunes and SoundCloud. Like, comment, share, and most important, subscribe. Please, right now, give me a five-star review. It really helps grow the podcast and share it with a broader audience. I am broadcasting from my studio apartment in Washington, D.C., and just finished the first season of The Good Place with my fave, Kristen Bell. She is freaking adorable. Basically, she dies and goes to heaven, but, well... They made a mistake, and she actually is a terrible person who belongs in the bad place. It's good stuff. Today's episode chronicles the real story of women in combat, a story misunderstood and forgotten amidst the drawdown in Iraq and Afghanistan and, well, people moving on. What started with the Lioness program evolved, as did the global war on terrorism. Enjoy. Today, it seems like every day we're hearing about misbehaving men, Harvey Weinstein and casting couch faux pas, handsy elected officials, of which there are many, Matt Lauer's general creepiness, the list goes on, so no sense dwelling on it, because it would take forever. Such blatant examples of sexual harassment, assault, or even rape have invigorated women who demand abrupt changes to the status quo. Well, they aren't alone. Countless men are joining the fight against what some have described as systematic injustice and wrongdoing. From Hollywood to the halls of Congress, the hashtag MeToo movement is truly viral. Now, today I'm not going to discuss sexual harassment-related matters, which I think we all find intolerable. Rather, I want to discuss a myth that won't die a painful death. The myth is spotted by members of Congress, a number of former top brass in the military, some uninformed active duty personnel, those with a selective memory, and a guy down the street with big opinions and shoddy research. The myth is that women haven't been serving in combat. A myth that just because until recently women were barred from direct combat roles, they weren't placed in harm's way throughout the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. A decade plus of constant war supporting the global war on terrorism blurred the lines, challenged convention, and saw women placed in unprecedented positions. Understanding the real story isn't just important for altering pre preconceived notions, but also critical for giving proper respect for all their sacrifices, injuries, and even death. Explaining and highlighting the contributions of women during GWAT efforts in no way diminishes those of men. Instead, they help showcase the new faces and shape of modern warfare, especially conflicts in Middle Eastern areas where customs and cultural taboos demand a starkly different approach. If Iraq and Afghanistan taught us one thing, it's that modern complex wars in urban environments have no front lines, safe havens, 
and no gender barriers. So what if I told you more women have been killed in GWAT than in any other American conflict today? How is that possible? Why haven't you heard about it? Now, perhaps you have, but recalling comments made by elected officials regarding the prospect of women entering combat roles, you'd think women serve in the sidelines, far away from the sandbox. Sure, some did. Many didn't. Women ran convoys through IED-infested regions, provided life-saving medical care as fires rained down on their positions, worked closely with locals of questionable allegiance on cultural support teams, and piloted helicopters and jet aircraft. Point is, the hair-splitting over the definition of combat misses the point. Numerous women took fire. Debating how much constitutes combat is a fool's errand and discredits their service. And I'm not a fan of that. So I am going to attack what I see as an incomplete narrative at best, extremely faulty in reality. But to properly do so, we have to start with a story. The often forgotten story of the Lioness Program. By 2005, American military operations transitioned from strictly kinetic, i.e. engaging the enemy with that famous overwhelming shock and awe, to stabilizing post-Saddam Iraq. On the ground, servicemen started to notice a disturbing trend, a thriving insurgent campaign using Iraqi women to subvert checkpoints. Employing female suicide bombers and smugglers gained popularity. Why? Well, despite arguments to the contrary, American soldiers tried desperately to honor cultural norms, in particular those pertaining to women. In Muslim tradition, men are forbidden to touch women. You can kind of see how this is going to become a problem. A problem the enemy exploited. So, American military leaders brainstormed options. In a classic case of necessity fostering ingenuity, a bold step was taken. One that would forever blur the lines of women's roles in the military. The decision was made to embed volunteer females to combat units. Ironically, the same service so outspoken against women in combat was the first to implement what came to be known as the Lioness Program, the U.S. Marine Corps. Volunteers flocked to join the ranks of this groundbreaking initiative. What was their purpose, and what did they do? Well, that's where things get a little bit dicey. Team Lioness originally placed women with combat troops at checkpoints. That was the original idea. Have them search the females, certainly an important charter. Yet, their role expanded to outreach public affairs as well. One thing 100% true in the military is that missions evolve, sometimes, constantly. These female Marines proved useful tapping into the female populace. They brought a human element to the other half, the massive population of women suffering from the trials, ongoing war, and insurgent oppression. Lioness collected valuable human intel, addressed concerns, and served as compassionate confidants. It's important to note here that at the precise time, the State Department was in a fix. Traditionally, foreign service officers would be used to facilitate some reconstruction and stabilization efforts. People with an in-depth understanding of the language, culture, and traditions. Trouble was, the State Department was short on personnel. 
In the lead-up and throughout the war in Iraq, there was a siphoning of funds from the State Department to bolster military spending. Budget cuts hit elsewhere too, but the State Department and their historical role cultivating a cadre of regional experts made those cuts impactful. Both wars also put the State Department in a bind for another reason. What were the guidelines for direct involvement, i.e. in-country, while fighting was still occurring? The State Department is a diplomatic entity. Despite their cultural expertise, the majority of foreign service officers were ill-equipped to perform their duties while bullets whizzed by. I liken it to the situation under Boutrous Boutrous Ghali, Egyptian politician and sixth secretary general of the United Nations. During the Rwandan genocide and crisis in Somalia, he desired peacekeepers to adopt more of a peacemaker role, pick sides and transfer arms, etc., Shifting from the diplomatic realm into direct operations confuses diplomacy and is, frankly, not a skill the UN has matured. Now, let's go back to the State Department. I'm not saying they couldn't perform consulting roles and their normal diplomatic job, but the fact that in later years the military implemented their own foreign area officer programs to field cultural advisors demonstrates there was a big disconnect and overall gap. Amongst the many mistakes made in Iraq and Afghanistan, lacking the necessary cultural representatives, that was a big one. Not the biggest. That might have been going in the first place. Second is probably marching off to war with a far smaller invasion force than was recommended. But perhaps third was not knowing shit about the Iraqi people the people whose leader we just kicked the hell out of. With State Department strapped, women stepped in, side by side with lots of men to reassure a shaken nation that law and order would and could prevail. From the Linus program's inception, females flooded to earn acceptance. They came from all types of occupational specialties, wanting to test themselves and be part of an exciting new project. Now, for a moment, push aside the idea that they are women and women traditionally aren't viewed as badass. Okay, are, are we good? That being said, imagine if a new program is unleashed looking for female volunteers. Can we agree it might just be a tad competitive? We're talking about the best of the best. As with anything else, there might be a few turds. However, the quality of candidates was eye-watering. To even be considered meant you establish yourself in your primary job. Exceptional leadership, physical fitness, and interpersonal skills were just the beginning to become a lioness. The interpersonal skills were arguably the most important. They demanded women who could speak to a diverse group with confidence. Think establishing rapport in your office is tough? Try the always, I don't know, bomby Fallujah. Female candidates completed classes in culture and language, engagement training, combat skills to include weapons handling, searches, and patrolling. Additionally, they fine-tuned Marine Corps martial arts techniques and learned critical life-saving skills. Still, lionesses weren't technically considered combat personnel. Today, that seems like semantics, and you all know by now how much I dislike semantics, but... At the time, the technically was a big deal that flag officers, 
you know, admirals and generals and politicians loved to emphasize. Regardless, we can consider this the first time female American troops served in the same capacity as their infantry and combat arms counterparts. What was accomplished in Iraq eventually showed up in Afghanistan too. Marine Second Lieutenant Joanna Schaefer led the Afghan version of the USMC program, conducting their first mission in support of Operation Pathfinder alongside 3rd Battalion, 8th Marine Regiment. She found the challenge quite different from Iraq. The culture varied greatly, and Schaefer commented, we did not know much about their daily life of the Afghan women. The operations provided an opportunity to learn about the women, but also build and maintain faith and trust of them. Make no mistake, I mean, this was frontline duty. Arguing otherwise misses the entire point of what they were doing. So what happened? Well, the pilot program morphed. Eventually, Lioness was replaced with a duller name, Female Engagement Teams, or FETs. I prefer Lioness, the pride of the Marine Corps. So damn catchy. FETs still operate to this day as a program under review. The success of Lioness Forerunners convinced the military to expand female roles in the well-documented surge troop buildups towards the end of Bush's final term. Until Obama accelerated withdrawals, the war for hearts and minds necessitated more female involvement. Now, during the surge, an emphasis was placed on bolstering the support for local government, convincing tribal leaders to collaborate with U.S. forces, assure the population, improve conditions such as electricity, water, employment, and stimulate political participation. The U.S. military and fledgling governments had to show that things were under control. FETs played an important part. Make no mistake, official policy still barred the armed services from assigning women to direct ground combat units in most situations. Emphasis on most. Commanders had flexibility to temporarily assign talented women soldiers on combat teams. How long is temporary? Great question and who knows. This was uncharted territory. If you'd like to see this program in action, I highly encourage you to watch a 2008 documentary called Lioness, which chronicles some of the first members of Team Lioness in Ramadi, Iraq from 2003 and 2004. Why do I keep going back to the definition of combat? Perhaps you don't care. Fine. I'll tell you who does. The Veterans Administration. They care a lot. Having combat in your service record qualifies a person for specific health care benefits. It ups a vet's priority for quicker care and can increase the duration they are granted full coverage, including potentially life. Greater awareness of lionesses and FETs along with this documentary was a catalyst for key VA legislation. On May 5, 2010, Obama signed the Women's Health Care Improvement Act into law. As part of the Caregivers and Veterans Omnibus Health Services Act, insert boring, boring politics, blah, 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 legislation, the compensation owed for mental care based on activities in theater, Post-Traumatic Cess Disorder Act, expanded the definition of combat. 
it now became easier for all veterans, including women, to qualify for combat-related disability benefits. Definitions matter, especially now that we've grown all too familiar with the horrific effects of PTSD. Despite their usefulness, the drawdown once again put the program at risk. In 2012, the USMC ceased the use of FETs as locals assumed their duties. But then something interesting happened. In 2015, well, it was revived. For those thinking this was a flash in the pan, a third return defeats that claim. You don't bring something back three times. Twice, maybe, not three times. According to Lieutenant Colonel Steve Kahn, former operations officer for the 15th Marine Expeditionary Unit, the need for such teams remains strong as Marines continue training and advising Middle Eastern partners. Khan recalled at his previous post at Marine Corps Central Command, seeing requests for support from female troops regularly get sent to U.S. Special Operations Forces. But with no women in their ranks, the command had no way to fulfillment. The requests would occasionally get passed on to Marine Expeditionary Units in the region, but would often go unanswered because the units weren't prepared for those missions. Just as there are hazards to the mission when capability gaps exist, an unclear or non-codified approach to using females in expanded roles can present issues as well. Early on, lionesses experienced this firsthand. One lioness recounted the time when Marines tactically withdrew from a contested location. She was left high and dry not realizing they issued a symbol to give ground. See, Army and Marines sometimes use different codes and protocols, and this lioness hadn't received proper training in this realm. I mean, why should she, right? She wasn't supposed to be in combat. Surprise! She found herself in a firefight. Small differences matter, and often concepts committed to paper don't match reality on the ground. The point is, Policy ambiguity is dangerous and detrimental to good order and discipline and mission accomplishment. If women are to be further integrated into combat roles, it cannot be ad hoc. Nor can demands be driven solely by equality, but factor in unit cohesion and existing capability gaps too. Women's rights groups have called for discriminatory policies to end. They desire special operations communities, SEALs, Rangers, etc. open to women. Infantry units, too. Caution and dialogue is needed here. And I'll jump back to that. Right now, I want to take the time to laud the contributions of women in combat. Combat that technically isn't combat, quasi-combat that the Pentagon estimated resulted in 160 females killed in action. During a six-month deployment to Afghanistan from 2008 to 2009, Marine First Lieutenant Rebecca Turpin led convoys. I emphasize, led. Her actions one fateful day awarded her a combination medal with a V for Valor device. To illustrate, I have two combination medals, but none with the V. She's one of the few ever to receive it. Around 4 a.m., 18 vehicles started their trek. Along the way, multiple IEDs sapped convoy strength, 
forcing her to manage losses and keep her soldiers alive and moving on mission. Then the day got worse. Heavy fire ripped through the convoy from a small village. She immediately called on Cobra helicopters for much needed close air support. The Cobras let loose, sending insurgents into hiding. Then silence, quiet, apart from the whirling Cobra's blades. The insurgents, though, rematerialized, reengaged. Without hesitation, Turpin coordinated fires from machine gunners and overhead helos. In a bad spot, the convoy survived and pressed onward. The first of two women to earn the Silver Star since World War II did so leading a counterattack. Is that combat? Army Sergeant Lee Ann Hester halted her vehicle when her convoy came under blistering firepower, including rocket-propelled grenades. Sitting ducks, she accompanied her squad leader on foot, crossing a berm and into trenches, the source of the enemy fire. With well-placed grenades and rifle fire, they eliminated one. Shortly thereafter, they cleared the rest of the trench. All told, they'd killed 27 insurgents, wounded six, and captured one. Not bad. Inspiration for the New York Times bestseller Ashley's War, First Lieutenant Ashley White worked in those cultural support teams, or FETs, I mentioned. Called the heart of her team, she lost her life in an ambush. Her selfless actions shook the establishment, uneducated in the emerging face of modern combat. She received the Bronze Star, Purple Heart, Meritorious Service Medal, Afghan Campaign Medal, and a Combat Action Badge. Combat Action Badge. Posthumously. Then there's Combat Medic Army PFC Monica Lynn Brown. While assigned to the 82nd Airborne Division in Afghanistan's Paktika province in April 2007, she became the first woman to earn the Silver Star in Afghanistan in second since World War II, after Hester. When a pressure-plated IED knocked out the last Humvee in the convoy, all hell broke loose. Her citation reads, Brown quickly reached wounded soldiers from the burning Humvee and applied crucial medical aid while more than a dozen mortar strikes landed all around her. A platoon sergeant used Afghan truck to transfer Brown and the wounded to a secure site just before a mortar flew shrapnel onto her previous location. Softball-sized chunks of fiery aluminum prompted her platoon leader to call the situation as hairy as it gets. Brown despite her admirable service, was reassigned due to the combat ban on women. How strange. Army Chief Warrant Officer 3, or CW03, Lori Hill flew helicopters, an OH-58 Kiowa to be exact. She earned the Distinguished Flying Cross, the first woman ever. In Iraq, another hairy situation led her to draw fire away from the lead chopper as she directed suppressive fire to keep the enemy occupied. An RPG struck her helo, yet she kept calm and in control. On the ground, the troops reached safe havens. Even after an enemy round pierced her ankle, she kept calm, kept control. She safely piloted her crippled aircraft back to base with crew intact. 
When asked about the experience, she said, I was actually just glad I didn't pass out and very happy I was able to help the ground guys out and get our helicopter safely on the ground. Lastly, and this one really tugs at my heartstrings, is Captain Jennifer Moreno, an Army nurse assigned to a U.S. Ranger unit. Moreno made the ultimate sacrifice along with two fellow Rangers. On the evening of October 5th, 2013, Moreno participated in a patrol that went south. She received conflicting orders to help a dying soldier trapped in an Afghan bomb-making compound and hold her position to avoid setting off another bomb in a mine-ridden area. She chose to help her fallen comrade. She advanced. A hidden explosive detonated, killing her instantly. Captain Amanda King, commander of the cultural support team, wrote in her eulogy, None of us would have done what you did, running into hell to save your wounded brothers, knowing full well you probably wouldn't make it back. Moreno was posthumously awarded the Combat Action Ribbon, Bronze Star, and Purple Heart. Why did I tell these stories? Well, to me, it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to remember these women alongside the countless others who fought, died, and suffered injuries. War, it's gender neutral. Bullets don't care, nor do bombs. Men have certainly been more active in combat roles. I mean, it isn't even close. But it isn't a competition. Highlighting female contributions in no way diminishes the service of men. Anyone sell, saying otherwise, well, they're selling something. They're selling a false narrative, a perversion of events, and mischaracterizing the real complexities exposed during the global war on terrorism. So where are we now? How have things changed? On January 24, 2013, Secretary of Defense Leon Panetta removed the military's ban on women serving in combat. Women rights advocates cheered. Thing is, implementing such sweeping changes is far more difficult than activists might think. This happens all the time. Even the gun control debate. Sure, people can say they want to eliminate all assault weapons. What does that mean? Forcibly go door-to-door -door and remove the estimated 100 million from law-abiding citizens? Prohibit new sales? Talk is easy. Crafting policy is harder. Executing? That's a whole other ball game. To date, carrying out the Panetta Directive is at various stages across the military branches. Obstacles and questions remain. Should women be mandated to register with the Selective Service System? Or other, in other words, the draft? Should standards be lowered? These are all questions that people have asked. In 2013, three women completed the U.S. Marine Corps Infantry Training Battalion course. However, they didn't immediately join the infantry ranks. Rather, they waited on a series of studies created in response. Look, I hate jerking people around. However, crap like this happens when policies come from the top with little regard to the execution piece. The military, they were caught off guard, and yes... They did drag their heels, to be honest. Then again, we're talking about major transformations in the ranks, not something to take lightly. Of course, there are those who simply don't want women in combat roles based on a chauvinistic attitude. That exists. Yet many more are legitimately concerned with ensuring performance 
doesn't drop and unit cohesion is maintained. Those yelling the loudest typically didn't serve and have zero clue how the military is structured and what unit cohesion even means. That isn't to say the answer is to do nothing. Instead, it means to tread carefully and work in a coherent, well-thought-out manner. In April 2015, a two-and-a-half-year research study at the arduous Marine Corps Infantry Officer course ended without a single female graduate. It might be easy to direct anger at the Marine Corps, but just as a bullet apparently doesn't discriminate, neither do physical fitness and endurance tests. The final two female participants of the study failed the initial combat endurance test. Still, in January 2017, years after the three other females graduated from the enlisted course, they were authorized to serve as either riflemen, machine gunners, or mortar marines in the 1st Battalion, 8th Marines. You remember Jennifer Moreno, who served as a nurse for the Rangers? Well, the Rangers and Navy SEALs commenced plans to open positions to women as early as 2015 and 2016. In August 2015, Captain Kristen Grist and First Lieutenant Shea Haver became the first to graduate U.S. Army Ranger School. Unfortunately, they failed a portion of tests required to earn admittance into the 75th Ranger Regiment. In 2016, Grist requested transfer from the military police and became the first female infantry officer in the U.S. Army. In March 2016, Ash Carter approved final plans to open all combat jobs, including special forces to women. This, despite staunch opposition from military leadership. On October 26, 2016, 10 women became the first female graduate from the U.S. Army Infantry Basic Officer Leaders Course. A Marine woman succeeded in passing the Marine Corps Infantry Officer Course in Quantico, Virginia. The first ever to do so. In August 2017, the first woman to ever attempt Navy SEAL training dropped out of the selection process. She attended a three-week officer introduction program designed to screen candidates and give them a taste of SEAL life. She quit halfway through the assessment program prior to attending basic underwater demolition school known as BUDS. Those hoping for a happy ending, female rangers, SEALs, etc., will have to wait. One thing I know for certain is that one day a woman will graduate buds and become a SEAL. It's only a matter of time. A trailblazer will come. Some woman forged in iron will pass the gauntlet. Yet it won't change things. How can I say that? Because we're focusing on the wrong issue. If equality is expected or demanded, there will never be a moment in which women make up a proportionate percentage of combat units, let alone special operations. It's a fantasy to think otherwise. Why? First off, women already constitute a far smaller percentage of the military. The pool is smaller. So first, the pool must be greatly expanded. The military is trying this with questionable success. Believe me, the effort is there, but attracting females to join the military remains a problem. Once they join, how do you keep them? Some don't enjoy addressing the details, but they matter. A recent study showed that enlisted women at the E5 and E6 pay grades leave service at a disproportionately high rate. Why? 
When questioned, many mentioned their desire to start a family and have stability. This is around the time when people want to do that. I can hear feminists howling now, but military life is completely different from civilian life. Deployments, I've done four, takes you away from family and loved ones. There is no magic wand or solution to that. We in the military deploy overseas. It's what we do. Family, as often advertised, comes after mission. We use the term mission shipmate self a lot of times. Family falls into the self category. Couple that with differences in male and female physique, and one starts to see a more complicated challenge. Lowering standards lowers the bar and defeats the underlying rationale for this egalitarian pursuit. Increasing the number of women isn't a make-it-so-edict either. Sorry, but that's the way it is. Of female officers I served with, nearly all are out of the Navy. I know their reasons, and they are nuanced. But those shouting the loudest would be better served listening a bit more. The standards argument is where I see things differently. My attitude is that if somebody can meet requirements, they should be allowed to serve in that capacity. But how the process works is crucial. Take baseball. Imagine if someone else was brought up to the big leagues instead of Jackie Robinson. Someone mediocre, I don't know, maybe just good. Sure, people could still say baseball integration was realized. But what then? What makes Jackie Robinson so special is not only that he changed baseball, but also was an incredible player. He was the player and the man. His color at the end of the day mattered less than his talent. And that is the incredible way change happens. You don't realize it. Undeniable talent shifts perspectives. How people succeed and who they are is far more important than checking equality boxes. It was the case with a charismatic, collected, intelligent Barack Obama and a rear admiral by the name of Grace Hopper, a certified genius who revolutionized computing. How change materializes is vital. Lowering the bar does no one justice and defeats the purpose. It doesn't change perceptions. Instead, it only reinforces them. It reinforces a certain view that people can't cut it without help, lower bars, expectations, or politicians rushing in to give them a brass ring instead of earning it. Tough talk, I know, but it's true. Women don't need a savior, but an opportunity. I agree with that. Women have been serving in combat. Those forerunners, trendsetters, changed the conversation. Now the question is, where it goes from here. Regarding standards, I have good news. Qualified and capable women are out there. Some are serving. For others, the dream of joining the military is merely a twinkle in their eye. When Obama opened the door for women to enter combat ranks, I was disappointed. Why? Because the approach was so Washington, D.C., so bureaucratic and tone-deaf. New policy change, open the floodgates, yay women with a Y. Forget about the tough stuff like execution. What I saw was three problems. First, was the cultural shift in the military accepting a women's new opportunity to be on the front lines in a larger capacity. Remember, we also determined women have been doing this, but just in a policy gray area. 
Now, you'd be surprised how quickly us military folks fall in line and follow orders. So I'm not really that worried about the first. Second, women rights advocates will never be happy unless our military force fully reflects society. What do I mean by this? I mean that to many, numbers and percentages matter. I've seen this firsthand. A representative force thus requires X percent women in each job, X percent Hispanic, X percent African American, and so on. People of genders and races have proved themselves in military service, yet focusing too much on those percentages may lead to foolish policies. Simultaneously, some of the same individuals seeking a more egalitarian force oppose current recruitment methods. They don't like recruiters coming to high schools, advertising campaigns, and so on. So you're kind of damned if you do, damned if you don't. The military just can't win. Regardless, the military has upped recruitment efforts for women and minorities with varying degrees of success. Racial and gender groups are no monolith wanting the same things. White males are no different either. The choice to serve is extremely personal. People who've never signed up will never understand. The third is managing the unit cohesion aspect. The fact remains, infantry units being male-dominated and full of young, horny men have a frat boy element. Still, in the Navy, ships are fully integrated. So the Navy figured it out at some point. There are absolutely problems that occur and are well-documented, such as co-mingling, in other words, dating and hookups, instances of harassment, and yes, unfortunate cases of rape. These problems, though, are not the norm. Rather, the norm is people working alongside and treating others with respect. Policies are evolving all the time to address harassment and update protocol for responding to rape allegations. Point is, just because something is hard or might affect unit cohesion doesn't mean we shouldn't do it or can't do it. If someone meets the standard, gender or race should not be a barrier. Throw sexual orientation in there. Uh, though there's lots to discuss at a later date, especially with respect to transgender, and that is an interesting thread. Ah, so what's my solution? I have to have one, right? Well, if I were king for a day, and knowing that the likelihood that our military will one day be 50% or so female to reflect society stands at 0% based on all the aforementioned stuff, I might take door number three. Door number three is to move beyond talk and show people what women can accomplish. The military wants females and clearly has an appetite for their skills in the cultural support arena. What I would do is expand the concept, expand it big time. Develop a crucible to rival all crucibles. Take BUDS training, take ranger school requirements and tweak them both, tailor them. Then fully fund a joint female cadre for combat arms. Keep ranger and seals open to women, but think big. Change the discussion, and the best way to do that is to lay out an open challenge. Let's go back in history. Imagine if Obama, instead of a memo, a boring memo that nobody reads and is uninteresting, said the following, and said it on open air. We want women to be part of reshaping a new force. 
Based on the experiences during a decade-plus global war on terrorism, we need women who are simultaneously able to patrol hostile streets, but pull the population and gather human intel critical for battlefield awareness. You'll go through a training regimen that is unrivaled and unprecedented. There are no shortcuts or free passes. The vast majority who try will fail. We're searching for the absolute best across the entire military. We're making accommodations for a seamless transfer into the candidate process if you pass a screening that is like no other. For those not in the military, the challenge still stands. If you can meet entry criteria, you will get a shot to become part of an elite all-female fighting force. I know you are out there. I've seen the CrossFit competitions, ultra-marathoners, and triathlon champions. We need to look no further than mixed martial arts to know you exist. The right women are out there. So here's your opportunity to test your mettle against the very best in the world. If you've been looking for the ultimate test, look no further. And good luck. You'll need every bit of it. Sound crazy? Well, maybe in the United States. Elsewhere, all women regiments have taken fire and given it back for years. Rani of Hanzi Regiment of the Indian National Army served as guerrilla infantry and nurse corps during World War II. Then there's the Soviet Union's Night Witches, which is an awesome name, female aviators who flew harassment and precision bombing runs against Germany from 1942 to 1945. They flew over 24,000 missions and dropped 23,000 tons of bombs. 23 of those women were awarded the Hero of the Soviet Union title. Was that combat? In Poland, the Voluntary Legion of Women worked as paramilitary organization in late 1918 to fight Ukrainians and then the Soviets from 1919 to 1921. Heck, Muammar Gaddafi, Libyan leader, had bodyguards referred in the West as the Amazonian Guard. They were an all-female elite force. In 1998, one was killed and seven wounded when fundamentalists ambushed his motorcade. Aisha, his favorite guard, threw herself across his body to stop bullets from hitting the leader. Lastly, but definitely, definitely not least, there's the Kurdish women fighters who've been taking names and kicking ISIS ass across the desert for years. I haven't even gone back to antiquity or mentioned Joan of Arc. But you get the picture. Oh, and concerning that unit cohesion, men and women operating side-by-side in infantry units, there's Israel's 33rd Karakal Battalion, one of three fully combat units composed of males and females. The other two, the Lions of Jordan Battalion and the Cheetah Battalion. A Karakal, by the way, is a small cat whose sexes appear to the same. In 2009, the percentage of women in that unit was 70%. Israel figured it out. Think big. Shift paradigms. Anyway, that's my opinion. I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this 19th episode of Poor Calls and Politics. Uh, Please hit me up on uh, Instagram, Facebook, and give me that five-star review. I could really, really use it. And... Be sure to share with your friends if you like this. 
I'm going to leave you with a song that has really nothing to do with this whole episode, except the fact that I just really want to listen to some heart right now. This is Alone, which in my humble opinion is the best heart song. Some people say Barracuda. I say Alone. This has some, this is an epic power ballad. Work in the piano, high-pitched vocals, all necessary traits for a power ballad. <laughs> 